0: One Hope Church. This morning we're going to talk a little bit about work. We're going to take a break from our Luke study because we have Luke chapter 2. Next week, you know, the birth of Jesus, and that's kind of important. We want everybody to be there for that. This is important, too. Um, So good to be here for this. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll hop right into it. Heavenly Father, we love you and praise you. We thank you for your goodness to us, God, your love for us. Thank you we can be here together. We can look into your word. We ask that you bless our kids upstairs, help them to have a good time, um, to learn a lot about you, and to grow in their faith. Uh, We thank you for our kids, Lord. Uh, we thank you for the opportunity we have to worship you together today. Um, we ask that you bless all those in our church family who um, aren't with us this morning and just ask that you would bless their travels and uh, their times with their families and other things, Lord, and just um, bring them back safely to us, we pray. In your name, Jesus, we ask it. Amen. Amen. All right. So talking about work, um, when I think about work in the Bible, I mean, you know, you can't get away from work in the Bible. The word "work" is used over eight hundred times, so it 's a pretty big concept uh, in the scripture there 's lots of things about God working, about different people working, about different types of work, and about how work should be done. Um, one of the really cool things I think to look at is uh, people working when it 's difficult, and that 's one of the things we want to look at this morning in the life of Joseph in the Old Testament, not to be confused with Joseph. Uh, as in Joseph and Mary and Jesus. So this is um, back um, after you know Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob has uh, 12 sons, and Joseph is one of those sons. And so uh, Joseph was, just to give a little bit of a background, um, he was his father's favorite. Uh, and there's a lesson in there that fathers really shouldn't have favorites, you know, that we should have. Um, that, that, was, that kind of made things difficult for Joseph, the special um, attention that he got. His father, you know, would always kind of give him the best and gave him this, you know, really special coat that, you know, none of the other sons received. And so there's this natural kind of jealousy. And then, you know, that jealousy took root into sin and that sin, you know, grew, until where, you know, really that's the thing that sin does. Sin, sin grows to a point in a person's life that that person really isn't so much in control anymore, but the sin isn't the one that's dictating. The sin is what's in control. And so this is the case for his brothers. And so his father sends Joseph out to them to see how they're doing with the sheep, and they're kind of far away, and here, take some supplies, check on them, give me a report. And when he goes out there, they see him coming a long ways away, and, and some of the brothers wanted to kill him. Like, now's our chance. You know, there's nobody here to protect him. We can just kill him. And another, uh, Reuben, says, well, you know, what's that going to profit us? Then we're going to have his blood on our hands. Let's, you know, just leave him here in this well, uh, this dry well. And, um, you know, then we can say we did not know what, you know, what happened to him kind of deal. And he had the idea that he was going to go back later and rescue him. Somehow he ends up leaving the scene. It seems like maybe he had to go, you know, catch some sheep. But he comes back, and his brothers had sold Joseph to some Midianite um, or some Ishmaelite, excuse me, traders. And um, he's on his way down to Egypt, and it's too late. And you think about the callousness of these brothers. They go back to their father with, you know, they put, you know, they slaughtered an animal, put the blood all over Joseph's coat, and they take it to their father and say, you know. And, you know, he, he comes to this conclusion a wild animal must have gotten him. And it says that, you know, Jacob, you know, basically went around, he mourned for a very long time with sackcloth, you know, and ashes. And he's, you know, in this miserable state. And his sons are there watching their father suffer day after day after day and unwilling to tell the truth. You know, that's a pretty hard heart. Uh, it takes a pretty hard, you know, heart. And I'm sure there was some fear of like, well, now we can't tell the truth because we have no. So in Genesis thirty-seven, thirty-six, it says. Meanwhile, the Midianite traders arrived in Egypt, where they sold Joseph to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the king of Je- of Egypt, and Potiphar was captain of the palace guard. So he gets sold to this man who has an important position. Um, and so, chapter thirty-nine. Uh, beginning in verse 1, there's chapter 38, it's a different story, and it kind of picks up in the same place. Then it starts again, when Joseph was taken to Egypt by the Ishmaelite traders, he was purchased by, purchased by Potiphar, an Egyptian officer, and Potiphar was captain of the guard for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. The Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. And Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. And this pleased Potiphar, so he soon made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. And from that day, Joseph was put in charge of his master's household and property, and the Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. And all of his household affairs ran smoothly, and his crops and livestock flourished. So Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. With Joseph there, he didn't worry about a thing except what kind of food to eat. Um, and so that's a pretty you know, powerful description. Obviously, we see, in it, we see in it two different things. We see, one, that the Lord is working, and he's blessing everything that Joseph puts his hand to do, right? Um, so the Lord is with Joseph. There's no getting around that. There's no debating that. But we also see on Joseph's side, there's a faithfulness, and there's a willingness to work, um, and that as he, you know, works, he's given more and more. You know, Potiphar gives him more and more responsibility to the point where Potiphar says gives him control of everything. You know, he becomes the manager of you know of everything in the house and of all the finances of all the business. And you know, it says that Potiphar, you know, he's sitting there. He's kind of like you know a wealthy American at this point. Going, you know, his biggest decision of the day is. What am I going to eat? You know, he's got his job that he does back at the palace, but in terms of coming back home, that's really, you know, everything's taken care of. Do he, You know, he's kind of like, do I want fish today? Do I want steak? You know, that's, those are his big decisions. Um, that, that's how well things have gone. But then there's a, a switch here. The end of verse 6, it says, Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man, and Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. But Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household, and no one here has more authority than I do. And he has held back nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. And she kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her, and he kept out of her way as much as possible. A couple of things there that I think are are interesting. Uh, One is, you know, when he's presented with this, you know, opportunity, um, you know, for sin, his perspective. You know, his perspective is, you know, your husband's given me, you know, been good to me and given me... You know responsibility over everything. And I don't want to, you know, go against him, but this is the big thing at the end. It would be a great how could I do such a wicked thing? It would be such a great sin against God. And really all sin is a sin against God. You know, it's it often has a sin against another person as well, even against ourselves, against another person. But ultimately all sin is against God. Um, but, you know, especially here, because God had blessed Joseph so much and blessed, you know, his work and was, you know, he, he's in a difficult situation, but he knows that the Lord is still with him. And so it's kind of like, a, you, you know, he has this great, like, how could I, you know, perspective, which is really important. And, and I would hope that we would have a similar perspective if, you know, we believe in Jesus that he, you know, he died on the cross for our sins, that he took all of our sin, that he took all of our guilt, he took all of our our shame and pain and everything, uh, when we're presented with, you know, an opportunity for sin, particularly, you know, grievous sin as this is, that we would have that perspective, like how could I do that against what, you know, we would think about what Jesus has done for us and say how could I do that in relation to that? And that that would be a, something that would put a stop, you know, to us. Um, but there's another, one other thing here, I think is important, it says he kept out of her way as much as possible. You know, he's making an effort to not be in a place of temptation, to not be in a place of vulnerability. Now, he's in a little bit of a, of a precarious situation because he can't just be like, well, I'm going to go work in somebody else's house. I'm going to change jobs. I mean, he's a slave. He doesn't have options. You know, we have options. We're in, if you're in a difficult situation at your work, if someone, you know is pressuring you in this sort of situation, you can usually get a different job if, you need to. You, if it goes to that level. You can do that. Um, you, or, or you have other um, you know, potential options, but Joseph doesn't have any, you know, except to try to avoid her as much as he can, but there's only so much he can do that, as we see. We pick up in verse 11, it says, One day, however, no one else was around when he went to do his work, and she came and grabbed him by his cloak, demanding, come on, sleep with me. And Joseph tore himself away, but he left his cloak in her hand as he ran from the house. Scripture also says to flee from youthful lust. So, you know, Joseph is a young man when this is happening. I mean, he's sold into slavery when he's 17 years old. So here he's maybe like 18, 19 years old, something like that. That's a lot of pressure for a dude that, you know, especially a dude that age. Um. Man, that's just it's powerful, his example here. And he's like, well, you know, wait, is this a message about, you know, work or is it about, you know, sexual purity? You know, what's, what's, what's the point here? You know, it really is about both, because it's about work and it's about integrity. And in, in your work, in our work, in every person's work, there are going to be points where we are attested, you know, morally or ethically in some form or fashion, Whether it's something like this or it's something with finances, uh, there's going to be a temptation or a pressure to do something that is contrary to God's way. It will happen. It's just a matter of time. You know, there's going to be that sort of situation that comes about. And so what do we do in that situation? Because there's work and there's our integrity and our morality as we work in the situations we're in. Um... So then this terrible thing happens to him. Verse 13, it says, When she saw that he was holding his cloak and he had fled, she called out to her servants. Soon all the men came running. Look, she said, my husband has brought this Hebrew slave here to make fools of us. He came into my room to rape me, but I screamed. And when he heard me scream, he ran outside and got away. But he left his cloak behind with me. She kept the cloak with her, hus- with her until her husband came home. And then she told him her story. The Hebrew slave that you brought into our house tried to come in and fool around with me. She said, but when I screamed, he ran outside, leaving his cloak with me. Interestingly, the two things that she says aren't the same exact thing. You can see in the, in the first set of, st- of statements, when the men came running, she says, my husband brought this Hebrew slave here to make fools of us. You know, she doesn't respect her husband. She doesn't say to his face, You know, here, you've brought this guy here to make fools of us. You know, but you can see how she presents to others how her view of him and then how uh, she is when she's just dealing with him directly. Um, And it says Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her. And so he took Joseph and threw him into the prison where the king's prisoners were held, and there he remained. You know, and so what do you have here? Think about Joseph, his life to this point. You know, first 17 years, really easy. He's got the favored position. Then his own flesh and blood, you know, his own brothers kidnap him and sell him and ship him, you know, he gets shipped down to Egypt where he becomes, you know, a slave and he's working in this person's house. He's got to learn a new language. He's got to learn a new culture. He's got to eat different foods. You know, everything is different for him. But the Lord, he, Lord's with him. He knows that. The Lord blesses him, and he thinks everything is going fine, and then, boom, he gets hit with this false accusation and ends up in prison. Doing the right thing all along, and doing the right thing got him a ticket to jail. Humanly speaking, people look at that and go, well, he would have been better off just to have sinned. He wouldn't have, he wouldn't have been in prison. Maybe. You know, but that's the thing about sin, and sin is deceptive. The, the consequences, you know, it can look on the outward appearance that the sin would have been the easy way out, but the consequences longer term would have been so much greater. And we miss that a lot of times. We miss that sin doesn't want you to think about long-term. Sin wants you to think about short-term and what is immediate and what feels good in the moment. because long-term sin you know, we see it logically even, leading to destruction and to misery. Uh, so that's the thing about sin. It has to keep people to only think about short-term repercussions. It's also important just to talk about this, and I think this subject even, you know, I'm sure you've seen in the news, you know, everything about Ashley Madison and, you know, the scandals there with, uh, you know, that's the website where people go to have a discreet affair, um, you know, but we can be certain, as it says, that, you know, be be sure your sin will find you out. (laughs) Like, you know, what's done in the darkness will come to the light. You know, people think they can sin and get away with it and it's hidden. And then, you know, some really smart dudes on computers figure, hey, you know what'll be fun little little thing to do? I mean, what's in it for them other than whatever, you know, their motivations, who knows exactly. But I bet we can hack it. And sure enough, you know, and then all these names come out and all these lists come out and all these things come out. And um, Ed Stutzer who Uh, Works a lot with, you know, trends and statistics and things like that. Um, Estimated that there would be 400 preachers, elders, deacons, whatever, you know, resigning the Sunday after that list came out. And you just go, really? You know, come on. But at the same time, you can understand it in the sense of sin is powerful, temptation is powerful, people not having... Um, enough accountability in their lives and not having enough real friendships and, and being willing to be vulnerable, and that's the result, you know. And, and you know, if I can just say a little word here, that's one of the reasons why we're an elder-run church and why we set the things up the way that we do. So that, you know, as I talk to many of my friends who, you know, became, you know, pastors of churches where they're the guy, um, and have known, you know, many others. And one of the things they all talk about is, you know, loneliness in ministry and being on an island. And they can't be vulnerable with, you know, people in their church. And they need somebody. If they're going to have that. It's got to be somebody from like the outside, like outside of their church. And I look at that and I just go, you know, that's just crazy. That's just really, really sad and crazy that this system is set up in such a way where you have these people who are trying to serve the Lord and they have, no, they have no true community within what is supposed to be a community and a family. And yet, the person trying to help lead that doesn't have it. Like, what? You know, and it really speaks to the truth of the scripture that the, the Lord's way is best, when it comes to how we organize a church and, how, and, and what it says we should be, um, because none of us are intended to be on an island. None of us are intended to be that person, you know, the, the hero. And it's a very dangerous place to be. Um, and so, you know, thankfully if we do things according to the word, we don't have to carry those, Even leaders, leaders or elders, you know, don't have to carry those burdens, you know, alone. Uh, and we just shouldn't. So you know, that's a kind of, as these things have come up, I mean, how many, I can't tell you how many times, you know, in the news that we've seen just, you know, sometimes there'll be a year or two where there hasn't really been big news, but so many different, you know, big names, televangelists here, person in this huge megachurch there, all the you know, little churches here and there as you know people, you know, things like that. And I keep going, looking at it and going, how long can the same things happen over and over and over again? And people keep addressing the person as opposed to the system. Because it just hasn't stopped and it's not gonna stop until the system changes. And so, you can, it, until the system changes, you can just expect more and more that, of that throughout your life and seeing that. That's the bottom line. And it's not that the system is, like, if you have the biblical system that that means nothing can happen, it just means that things are less likely to happen and there's a way to better prevent them from happening. And when things do happen, the repercussions are less for the church body because you have other people who are already on that same level of leadership. And so, yes, it hurts, but you're able to recover from that much more quickly. So anyway, um, I'm, maybe I'd like to think that the church as a whole will wake up to that reality and start to do things differently differently but I'm not super optimistic about that, sadly. <laughs> but maybe if we you know, keep trying to model the right things and maybe um, we'll, we'll see a, a trend move. I think there are some movements, but it's just not, it's not enough at this point. We need to pray for more on that. Okay, so back to Joseph. Verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a a favorite with the prison warden. And before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison. And the warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything. The Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. So even in the prison, the Lord is with him. Um, The Lord is with him. It says, And this is really awesome. Showed him his faithful love. It's like, so it seems like Joseph, when he was in prison, really felt and experienced God's love and knew that God was with him. And that had to be a great comfort with him. Because we don't know exactly how long, you know, he was in prison. We know kind of the rest of the story where, um, you, know, he, you know, two men, uh, the, the baker and the cupbearer, have the dreams and then you know he says, "Hey, remember me?" And you know the cupbearer doesn't remember him, um, and he's in there for prison longer until Pharaoh has the dreams about the cows, and the famine. You know Joseph interprets the dreams; the famine's going to come. Joseph ends up getting made second in, you know, command of all of um, all of Egypt. So, how long was he there? Well, we know he was 17 when he was sold into slavery. And we know he was 30 when he was made uh, second in command of all of Egypt. So that's 13 years. It actually says um, you know, that in verse 37 of chapter 30, verse seven of chapter 39, Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. So I don't know maybe he was there a year or two, and maybe he spent a decade or so in prison. It's kind of what I tend to think. Spent about a decade in prison. That's kind of rough. You know, he's in the same place, doing the same things day after day after day. Even in even with having the favored position, still not easy. easy. Still not easy. But he was he was faithful. The Lord was with him, and Joseph, you know, he had integrity in his work. Um, Ephesians six seven and eight. You know, this is in the context actually because even at this time that Paul writes, there's still you know slavery is a very you know, common, you know, thing. Um, and so these next two sets of verses um, have to do with people in that position. It says, Work with enthusiasm as though you are working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. Colossians three twenty-three and 25, Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward. And the master you are serving is Christ, but if you do what is wrong, you will be paid back for what you have done, for God has no, fa- no favorites. And so he says you're still going to be held accountable. You know, even with God helping you, even with God being there with you, you're still going to be accountable. And this is being written to people who were in difficult situations. How much more for us who are not in such difficult situations, but, you know, have you know jobs that we've applied for or that we've desired to have um, and you know are working with free free will being involved there so in 2 Thessalonians 3:10 through 13 it says even while we were with you we gave you this command those unwilling to work will not get to eat now of course there's you know, people read that and go, well, wait, what about people who were sick or people who were infirmed? I mean, of course. You know, of course, Paul's not hard-hearted. Neither is the Holy Spirit. Who? It's actually the words of God, you know, that we have here. And God is not hard-hearted. Um, but, you know, this is really, in the context, we see this. What we hear that some of you are living idle lives, refusing to work and meddling in other people's business And we command such people and urge them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and work to earn their own living. As for the rest of you, dear brothers and sisters, never get tired of doing good. So it had to do with people who were fully capable, you know, of doing work, but just were lazy or just wanted to, you know, sit around and do nothing, basically. Ephesians 4.28, if you are a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work and then give generously to others in need you know so there 's an expectation of change it's like, hey, if you came to know Christ and you were a thief, well of course you 're not going to be a thief anymore you're going to, instead you 're going to get a job you 're going to work hard and you 're not just going to provide for yourself but you 're also going to try to provide for other people you 're going to be a generous person so that 's pretty awesome you know how that, that change happens you know in a person's you know in a person 's life um, and I want to say this before just kind of switching gears just a little bit. But, you know, when I look at people in our church, I'm thankful to be part of our church where I see lots of people who work hard. You know, men and women, you know, who work hard, who, you know, go to their their jobs and have a good reputation at their places of employment as good, hard workers. And and that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, And that's what... You know, it should be the expectation. You know, that shouldn't be like, you know, a surprise or an exception. But, um, you know, I will say this a lot of times, you know, if you have work and you hire somebody who's a, a believer, sometimes the results are disappointing. And that shouldn't be the case. That shouldn't be the case. But, you know i've had that conversations with you know number of people and it's kind of like 50-50 half who say they're a follower of Jesus you know if they get hired to do a job or good workers and you know half aren't and that, that shouldn't be the case at all you know it should be that you know as followers of Jesus we strive um, to to do a really high you know quality level because we're supposed to have the attitude that we're doing it for Jesus not just for this you know, client or for this you know person, but that it's for the Lord. So, well, how would you do it for Jesus? Well, the challenge comes in if you've got a lot of clients, <laughs> you're trying to treat them all like doing it for Jesus, right? Not one, but you know, and so to be consistent in that, um, you know, is is difficult and it's a challenge. But I think that the, I mean there are certain limitations that we, you know, that we have, um, just in terms of time and you know things of that nature, but. We should really strive to do well, you know, for for the Lord. Um, we shouldn't be people who say, "Well, I'll do X, Y, and Z for you," and then only end up doing X. Um, and something that I've tried to learn with this, and something that I even still, you know, we all want to tell people, "Oh, I'll do this for you." We all want to be the nice guy or lady who says, "Yeah, I got, I've got you. I can do that." Um, and so, what happens many times? Is that there's a tendency to over-promise and then under-deliver. You know, and we end, we can be, end up being in that situation and then people get disappointed and people get their feelings hurt and reputations are hindered, and the name of Jesus is, you know, not looked at as favorably. Um, so better to under-promise and over-deliver. Under you know, being realistic about you know, our time frames and about, um, you know, what else we have on our plate, you know, at the time. Um, and I think that that can be a challenge because if you're like me, you don't like to tell people no. You like to tell people yes. You like to tell people what they, what they want, you know, in a situation. Um, so to be willing sometimes to say no is better and being willing to say my goal for this is this and then try to exceed that. Um, you know, that can be a, a, helpful, a helpful thing, even in our time frames. You know, if you've got a job and it's going to take, you know, you hope it's going to take two months. Well, if it takes three, people are really upset. <laughs> if you had said four, people would be really happy. So a lot of times it's about, you know, being realistic and managing, you know, the expectations. But again, striving to do things for the Lord and to do it in the way the Lord would be pleased you know with and I think that at the end of the day that's what we need to that's the question we need to be asking is this how I would have done it for Jesus is this how I would have tried to do it for him Like again keeping the time and other things in, in consideration but is that how I would have done it regardless of what it is regardless of who it's for uh, regardless of whether you're getting paid what you think is a, the right wage for the work or not Uh, Because here, you know, the instructions that God is giving you know, about the Holy Spirit through Paul, um, people aren't getting the just return in this life for the work that they're doing. They're they're just not. They're not getting a fair wage because they're slaves. And yet Jesus even tells them to do, I mean, well, Jesus, again, through Paul, is telling them, to do their work as if it's for the Lord and not as for people, so I think that that's a helpful, you know, something to, to consider and to think about with that. Um, two, just two other little thoughts, and then we'll we'll wrap it up. Psalm one twenty-seven one says, "Unless the Lord builds a house, the workers, the work of the builders is wasted." And I I, I want us to think about that one a little bit, just in terms of Working on the right things. You ever do something, and at the end of it, you're like, "Yeah, it's fun, but what's the point? Like, what was the point of it? Like, it's the quality. It wasn't an issue of the quality of the job. It wasn't. It was an issue of the purpose of it. Like, did it actually have meaning? Did it actually have purposes And make a difference?" Um, You know, work is good for its own sake, but especially when you're working for someone else and you don't have a choice what the job is, we just do it like we're doing it for the Lord, right? But there are times when we have a choice of, I get to decide what this project is and what this project's going to be and what the purpose of it is and what the end result is. does because it matter. Because here it says, unless the Lord builds a house, the, worker, the work of the builders is wasted. So the, the work is still being done, But it was wasted work. Why? Because the Lord wasn't in it. It was just something that we thought was a good idea. I think we can even do this in the church. It's like, well, hey, we're going to do this ministry. We're going to, hey, we got this project. We got this plan. We think it's a good idea. We put a lot of work into it. But it really wasn't Jesus' plan. And so what was the point? What was the point of that? And so that's where we need to be certain. When we're the ones who have the decision-making authority that we are really seeking the Lord on is this something that the Lord wants us to do? Is this something that honors God and that is directed by Him? If not, we're just spinning our wheels. And I think that's true whether you know it's a project, you know, something that you're in charge of for your personal business or your work. It's also something, especially in the Lord's work um, that we really need to be to be seeking out. And then there's another. Th- side of it, Acts thirteen two it says, one day as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, dedicate Barnabas and Saul for, for the special work to which I have called them. And so just think about that, that sometimes the Lord has a special work for someone to do. He had a special work for Barnabas um, and Saul slash Paul to do. And so he set them apart for that because he had them to take these missionary journeys. And he didn't, you know, that, that was specifically for them to do, and they were given the authority to do that and the power, you know, behind that. Um, and they were set aside for that special work. Uh, and so that is a good question to ask the Lord. You know, is there something different that you want me doing, something that's, of, you know, that you have decided that I should be doing that is different from the path that I'm on. Because the Lord can take anybody who's doing anything and say, actually, I've got this thing over here for you to do, and I want you to do that. And it might not make sense to anybody except for God. Are we okay with that? You know, God has called people out of different positions that seem like, oh, that's exactly what that person should be doing, and the Lord had something completely different for them That was, you know, a special work, a special thing that the Lord had for them to do. Um, But when we go, when we're just thinking about it in that, if the Lord doesn't have a special work for you to do, like he did Barnabas and Saul, he still has a work for you to do on the spiritual side because, as we know, we're all supposed to be part of making disciples. Go into all the world. We're all disciples. All disciples are supposed to be making disciples. You know, growing as a disciple and making disciples. Um, so we know that we're supposed to be doing that work. Um, and a lot of times, that's through our other work. You know, as I look at different people in the room, you have, um, and thinking about people who aren't in the room, there are these opportunities that you have because of the place that you work in that other people don't have. Which is, I mean, and you can use that. And it's awesome to see people even in the room, Jimbo, Carrie, here, You know, working in a way that impacts other people's lives, and it's being used to share the good news of Jesus with many other people, Uh, and many people in the community who wouldn't be touched otherwise, who wouldn't get talked to about the Lord otherwise. Um, And so that's powerful and that's significant. So a lot of times the work of mission is through our, you know, other jobs. Um, and as the Lord, you know, gives us opportunity, um, and that was that was cool. The Lord really, um, as I was thinking about that, as you know, some of you know, we had a, a house project of the street where we renovated a home, and through that, you know, I got to you know meet some people I would would have never have gotten to meet otherwise, and got to have some really serious Jesus conversations with some of those people, um, and that was as much a reason to do that as any other reason, or probably more so, um, even though not really knowing that going into the project. And so just think about, you know, where does the Lord have you now? Most of you, you know, are working or will be working, you know, regular, you know, sorts of jobs. And so who there, walks in, walking in the door, does the Lord want you to reach out to and to speak to and to share the love of Jesus with? That's a tremendous responsibility. But the mission that Jesus gave us doesn't happen if that doesn't happen. Does that make sense? It's really not possible for it to happen outside of, you know, ordinary followers of Jesus doing ordinary work for an extraordinary purpose. doesn't happen outside of that because it, it really can't happen if it's just dependent on missionaries and those who are preaching. Because we can't send enough. We can't send enough. It's, just not, it's, it's not really possible. It's, it's like you need certain, certain people, just like Barnabas and Saul, were. they were the catalyst to get things moving and going in these places, but then it was ordinary people who had, most of whom, you know, had regular jobs who would then reach the city and the surrounding areas. And so that's um, really, you know, what I wanted to end on, because if we lose sight of that, then we have this unhealthy dichotomy with people who do the Lord's work and people who do other work. And it's really not like that. Um, we don't, and we don't need to think about it that way. We need to think about it. Yes, there are a, you know, some who are called, you know, like Barnabas and Saul were, you know, to a special work. But that certainly didn't exclude the responsibility of everybody, all the other disciples and everybody else in, in the church, even the church there in Antioch. They still had a responsibility to reach their city, to reach the people around them, and to be praying How much they prayed, and and then they, you know, they supported Saul and Barnabas as they sent them out. They didn't send them out empty-handed. And a lot of times we see Paul. You know, he did work, um, rarely because he had to, but a lot of times for the opportunities and to be an example. Um, You know, sometimes because he, I think, because he had to, but usually it wasn't the only way, because he had other churches supporting him. Um, But he did it. Because he wanted to show the value of hard work, you know, to the people that they were reaching uh, for the gospel. Because work has really been—I mean, that goes all the way back to the garden. Even without sin, you know, sin makes work difficult, but work itself is good. We see it back in the garden. You know, God gave, you know, Adam, you know, work to do. And there's, you know, Adam, you're going to be a gardener. You're going to tend the garden. You're going to name all the animals. It's you a know, small job, name all the animals. You know, so small, small job. But you know, he gave him things to do. He wasn't just, you know, Adam and Eve weren't just sitting around, you know, all day on their tails, in, you know, in this idyllic, you know, place and go, you know, doing nothing. They're, they're burning some calories, they're burning some calories. They're doing some work. Um, in the kingdom come, I, I think we have a wrong idea of heaven if we think there won't be any work there. There's going to be stuff for us to do. And so God is good in that way. Um, He's not going to have us, you know, just idle. (laughs) So let's uh, give him praise. Think about how the Lord wants us to work. And again, I just want to say just so thankful, you know, as I see different people in our church, just so many just really strong, solid examples of what it is to, to work hard and to work with purpose. I'm just really thankful for that. So thank you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and praise you. Um, We thank you for your goodness to us. Um, Lord, as we talk about work, help us to understand it's from you, and it's good, and help us to be about your work and your work through our our work, um, whatever that particular work is. But we pray that you would lead and guide us. We also pray that you would protect us. Lord, protect us from sin and temptation. Lord, in our places of work and just in life in general, when we are tempted with those ethical and moral um, sins, Lord, help us to be like Joseph and to think about you and about not dishonoring you. To think about you and think about valuing what you did for us at the cross. And so help us to maintain integrity. We pray that your name would be, would be praised because people would see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Jesus, you've even you've been taught us that. You taught us to go to the extra mile and for people who don't uh, deserve it. And so we're thankful for the examples and the teachings that you gave us, but Lord, in our flesh we're weak and we need your help. We need your help, Lord Jesus. So strengthen us by your Holy Spirit, we pray. We take the bread and cup this morning. We give you thanks. In your precious name.